Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 12 in our second series in world history. In podcast number 11, we explored the many isms of the day, nationalism, conservatism, and liberalism, and how it impacted the individual principalities and countries on the Eurasian continent. Today, we're going to be looking at economic and social unrest in the periods of roughly 1830 to 1850, again, on the Eurasian continent, looking specifically at the impact of the ongoing Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution simply could not be ignored. There was just no way of getting around the fact that more goods could be created faster and far less expensive than at any other time in human history. Needless to say, industrialization started out in the cities, which of course would draw thousands of people for the promise of more jobs, and in some cases, better paying jobs, although most of the time, not by much. But the more the crowded cities became, the living conditions and the standards, of course, plummeted. Getting people to and from the cities, as well as raw materials in and finished products out, it is arguably the most important invention to come into the industrial age or to impact the industrial age than that of the railroads, an idea that was born in England but adopted and put on steroids back in the United States of America, Britain initially had the most railroads out of any of the Eurasian countries, with the Ottoman Empire and the countries furthest to the east would have the least. The bottom line impact with the railroads, and the reason they were so important, is that, simply put, goods could travel faster, further, and cheaper. As long as a given country had those massive steel, heavy steel rails that went from one point A to point B, as long as that those rails were in good condition and you had a working locomotive, you had the ability to get goods from point A to point B faster, further, and cheaper than in any other form of transportation. The key to making the railroad work, though, would be the consistency in the rail width. In other words, the point centermost point or the top of the rail to the top point of the opposite rail. Worldwide, the standard is 56 and a half inches, or four feet, eight and a half inches. Clearly an oddball number, 56 and a half inches. Why not just round it down to 50 or up to 60? But remember again that new technology 
oftentimes is adapting from old technology, or in some cases, just borrowing the numbers. Remember, too, that the more that the newer technology can relate to the old, the better the chances that the new technology will be adapted to the current situation and adopted by more people. Simply put, the reason for the 56 and a half inches is that that was the roughly the same distance from one horseback to another with two horses pulling a carriage or a single ho horse would be able to fit in between the rails pulling a carriage. That with evidence indicates goes all the way back to the Roman chariots that used to roam around in the Colosseum in the days of the Roman Empire for entertainment and in some cases for modern in their day modern transportation. So again, the number really wasn't that far-fetched when created and established as the international norm. To this day, there has not been much deviation from that international standard width of 56 and a half inches. Where you'll see some deviation to that are the rails that go up through to forested areas where the rails will be narrower for space constraints and for the same reason the rails that go into the coal mines where the ore cars would be pulling the ore that was just dug out and bringing that to the major rail lines that would be waiting at some distance outside the coal mine entrances. So from there, the only other deviation, and it's a massive one, is that of the former Soviet Union, specifically Russia. As will be discussed when we get to the podcast on the impact of Adolf Hitler and the Blitzkrieg, it, the average person today, when if you were to mention Blitzkrieg, they equate that to the translation being lightning war, a combination of a country's ability to use their air force, navy, and army simultaneously for an assault on a given country. However, the key to a successful blitzkrieg really had nothing to do with those three branches of any armed forces. Rather, it was the ability to get those landed soldiers from the home country to the country they were attacking and back again as quickly as possible. The railroad is what was key to Hitler's use of the blitzkrieg. That wasn't lost on Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. Secretly, the more powerful Hitler became, especially when he employed the Blitzkrieg starting on September 1st, 1939, and Operation Case Yellow, excuse me, Case White, which is the assault on Poland, and then eventually Case Yellow, the attack on France, and then from there, Operation Sea Lion, where he could only bring the soldiers by rail up to the coast of France, the Netherlands, in order to attack England, that wasn't lost on Stalin. And secretly, he had changed the national rail width from the 48, four feet, eight and a half inches down to 36 inches. It's far cheaper to bring in a set of rail lines than it is to expand one because the axles of all the rolling stock and locomotives simply would have the excess cut off and new axles then put on the existing rolling stock. However, to undo that was an unbearable expense, and which is the reason why to this day into the 21st century, Russia still has not modified its national rail width to, re to go back to the international norm. So the railroad, again, had a massive impact here. From there, we're also looking at, though, in, in terms of some of the pluses that came in this, uh, the industrial age, 
industrialization, the railroads having a positive impact. Yes, there were the negative ones with pollution, as we will talk about later on. However, I also want us to focus on one of the negative things to come out of this time period as well, and that was the Great Potato Famine in Ireland, which raged roughly from 1845 to 1849. The famine was started by a blight that affected the various potato crops. Myself, I have familiar uh, some experience fighting blight as it affected a cucumber uh, that my wife and I planted when we lived in Chicago. Now, big deal for us, blight affects our cucumbers. We simply run to the grocery store for the cucumbers that we wanted. The Irish didn't have that luxury, of course, in these days. A blight is a horrible thing to see as it dries out the plant, it atrophies, the, the vegetables that are able to be produced, if any at all, tend to be stunted and not well-developed. And to date, there really isn't, to my knowledge, there still is not really a cure once that particular organism affects an area, the blight will reoccur every time that the ground thaws and, a new, and new seeds are planted, as was the case with my wife and myself. We had one particularly good summer with fresh cucumbers grown throughout the summer. After the, At the end of that summer, a blight had wiped out the cucumber plants. Big deal. It's fall. However, not long into spring, just as those first cucumbers were coming out, the blight came back and we did not have any cucumbers for the rest of the uh, summer. I was told off the record that the way to actually get rid of the blight would be to leave the cucumbers as they were and at the end of the summer to burn the plants. For some reason, burning the plants, literally lighting them on fire, has the best chances of wiping out the blight from the, for the next year. We tried it. It still came back. So again, to my knowledge, there's still no cure of this. However, the main staple in Ireland in the 1840s was the potato. As a primary source of food and rent, people starved, they lost their property, and this then was broadcast worldwide to the reality and the serious drawbacks of relying on one major commodity that became the staple of a given society. Fast forward from the 1840s, to the State of the Union address in 2006, when President George W. Bush made that famous statement, ladies and gentlemen of America, we are addicted to oil. And why he wanted to create policies to make sure that America wasn't so dependent on this commodity that if it was suddenly withheld from us by our overseas trading partners, or we ourselves ran dry, that we wouldn't have a similar reaction to the way that the Irish did in the Great Potato Famine, again, that went from 1845 to 1849. Within this Eurasian area, as the population continued to develop and the industrial industrialization continued to progress, proletarianization obviously surfaced. Simply put, that was the entry of workers into a wage economy. On the surface, it may sound like, see, that's progress, but careful. 
there's also a loss here. For the proletariat, or the entry of the common workers into a wage economy, a result of this would be a gradual loss of ownership of the production system. This occurred rapidly wherever the factory systems were rising. Remember that prior to the industrial age, by and large, what John and Jane Doe ate at night for their nightly dinner, the clothes that they had on, the house that they lived in, was the product of their two hands. Whether it was that they made all of those products themselves, or whether they grow an abundance of a particular product or created a particular commodity in such abundance that they traded with other people to get what they needed. That control of that entire system is going to be lost when one now leaves for work to go to an employer to work for X amount of hours to earn a wage. And that's where we get that phrase or that term, a wage-based economy. As industrialization advanced, there would simply be put new demands for educated slash skilled workers, such as carpenters, roofers, welders, mason workers. As time progressed, eventually plumbers. As the age of electricity would advance in the late 1800s, we would need electricians. Getting into the computer age, we would need IT. In other words, we see that this system that started with industrialization is still continuing well into the 21st century. The reason I'm stressing that is to drive home the point that the advent of new technology does not automatically mean the decimation of a class of workers. Will some workers lose their jobs as a result? Absolutely. But is it a complete wipeout? Not necessarily. Because with each advancement, also creates the opportunities for more jobs as well. The difference here, however, is that the more we advance, the more educated those workers are going to have to be to fill the jobs that were created. The drawbacks initially in this early age of industrialization is that there was no labor rights. The idea of special orders for custom goods would also take a back seat for the foreseeable future. How did this impact John and Jane Doe in society as well as the children? In industrial Europe, dad and older sons now left the homestead to actually go to work. Rather than rising in one's bed and bedroom, going to eat in the common area and then going to the home workshop, those areas were abandoned now as dad and the older sons left for work and eventually the, the wives and the older women as well. The income of wages versus the individual commodity or a service that a family provided was also an exchange. Because again, my dad and older sons and eventually mom and the older daughters, they're not seeing the fruits of their labor based on physical things that they're producing at home. Rather, it's what they're producing for a given employer and the wages they receive as compensation. I'm not saying anything new here to get the idea that job creation isn't exactly going to be equal. 
And not every dad and older son is going to make an easy transition as individual commodities from individual homesteads will die out as more and more people will reward entrepreneurs that create these things with the use of machinery because more of them can produce, be produced again at a cheaper uh, price per unit. Obviously, individuals are going to go through learning curves, some more severely than others. Some people that had generations of producing leather commodities, for example, in one's homestead will largely be out of work, find themselves in unemployment lines. But for what? There is no government unemployment in these days. Many will start going hungry. As a result, law enforcement would begin to take a new form within given European societies. A policed society was simply needed now, but one that had to be separate from the country's militia. And that's how our police forces, as we know it today, evolved. The visible police simply cut down on crime. It didn't take long for city and national leaders to recognize that the presence of a police force minimized the amount of crime that was being committed. That leads all the way up to modern times as more and more cities are experimenting with what we call the cop in a box, where we physically don't have a police officer there, but a box high up on a light or telephone pole indicates that the area is being monitored by police forces. We know that that still continues to this day to minimize the, imp to minimize the impact of crime. In fact, when I said cop in the box, what do I mean by that? Well, in the sense that cop in a box, the idea that the cop is not necessarily a negative term. Rather, police forces were identified by the copper badges that they wore that distinguish an individual because of the price of copper and its inability to be accessed in some cases easily. Somebody having a copper badge would have been harder to come by, would have been harder to, to create a forge or a, um, a fake badge. That said, that's where the term the coppers and then eventually the cops came from. So this, again, just a quick snapshot of in Europe as it continues to industrialize. We're finding out the drawbacks of relying on one commodity, that being the potato. In Ireland, we're seeing the positive impacts of the railroad, the rise of the proletariat, the drawbacks of that, of course, as well. For every positive, we have a negative. The need and impact for law enforcement. So let's take the camera now and let's go way up to give a quick overview as to what more or less the impact was with the countries as they hummed along in 1830s to 1850s Europe. And this is what we ultimately find. People obviously were scratching their heads as they marveled at the advances of industrialization. But some people were skeptical of it as well. And that's where we get into this idea of early socialist ideals that would be coming about. First off, please know and let me put it out there, I am a diehard capitalist. I benefited from the capitalist system. I still benefit from capitalism. My wife and I collectively owned three home-based businesses. 
Again, I am not, I don't see myself ever criticizing capitalism. Does it have its drawbacks? Does it have its shortcomings? Sure, as will be discussed. But I also though want to give both sides of this, even at the defense of socialism and Marxism as they develop at this particular time. First off, to dispel the myth that socialists and eventually communists were against industrialization is not true. It'd be very difficult for any individual to make a name for him or herself to decry industrialization and say, let's go back to the old way. Good luck trying to gain traction with that idea. No, socialists actually supported the Industrial Revolution, revolution and its benefits, specifically the fact that productive capacity increased and it could be a source of job creation. Okay, then what's their beef, you might ask? Their concern was the even distribution of wealth. That's where they saw the menace or the negative side or downside of industrialism, specifically capitalism. If human society was allowed to go it alone, to create products and try to improve on their products and compete with one another, for the most part, you'd have very, very few entrepreneurs that would be unbelievably wealthy, while the mass of society would be dependent on those entrepreneurs. For the most part, that isn't inaccurate for what their concerns were then to how it eventually evolved and is still the case in the 21st century. So what's their solution, you might ask? Their solution was that they thought government could and should be responsible for the even distribution of goods and wealth. Therefore, no one person could make gobs of money on the backs of the workers who are barely getting by. Needless to say, as I'm discussing this, the name is obviously coming to mind, none other than Karl Marx. A man born in 1818 in Germany, died when he was 65 years old in 1883 in London. His perhaps most popular work, depending upon how you define popular, that being the Communist Manifesto. Marx viewed capitalism as a potential wedge between the rich and the poor. He saw capitalism as having more of a negative impact on society if left unchecked in the countries where it was allowed. Rather, Marx argued, wouldn't it be better if the government owned all industrial capacity, owned all land, and then the citizens simply operated in those jobs, roughly getting equal pay. That was part of his argument. I don't mean to say that I've just incorporated everything that he believed in or ever wrote, but the gist of what we're concerned with here in this podcast session is this criticism of capitalism. The problem with his thinking and with what he wrote with that, in my estimation, is the fact, of course, that Marx, if he had gotten his way, where does the ingenuity come from? Where does the sense of independence, of creativity come from? If the government owns all, who runs it? How do they get paid? 
wouldn't there be the potential for the people that are that are the government workers to line their own pockets at the expense of the proletariat? Again, my more my more concerned, however, with where does the ingenuity come from? Look at your average within the United States proper. Look at your average fast food vendor. The next time that the appetite gets the better of you, but time doesn't allow you to go home and create something on the healthier side, and you find yourself pulling in through a drive-through of you fill in the blank with your favorite fast food restaurant, but just to rattle off some of the big ones, Sonic, McDonald's, Dairy Queen, Burger King, Wendy's, Subway. If you look at their menus, and look at how they have evolved just within the last three to five years. Look at how many new items have been added to the menu. What items might have been removed? They have to keep their menus. They have to keep their product line fresh in order to entice the regulars to continue to come back. Why? Because an old menu with the same items, year in and years out, year out, people lose interest. Look at the way our own automobiles change and what features are available. What's standard versus a paid option, an option we have to pay for. Notice that competition pushes more and more car manufacturers to try to provide all these niceties and luxuries, even in our most basic automobile. Look at the way our phones evolve from one year to the next. That is the effects of competition. Karl Marx might argue, no, no, that's the impact of planned obsolescence. In other words, corporate America or corporate international purposely designing things by withholding features that they will roll out on a later model so that we are induced to dig back into our pockets to buy the newer model. Again, as I said earlier, Capitalism isn't perfect, but any day of the week, I would rather have that massive engine of the economy riding on the collective mindset of commoners before I would ever trust it in the hands of any one government. So in this podcast, we went over a quick snapshot of the ideals of industrialism in Europe and Asia with from the 1830s through to the 1850s. When we return, we're going to look at the development and the addition of two major countries on the European continent called Italy and Germany. As of this podcast, chronologically, we're with where we're at in the second half of world history. Germany is still a collection of well over 100 different independent principalities. Your, uh, Italy is also a collection of various principalities. In the next podcast, we're going to see those individual principalities unite behind one flag and modify their name to have one national name of identification that we to this day still call Italy and Germany. And in that podcast, however, you are going to witness the greatest chess master of all times, not playing a typical game of chess on a wooden chessboard with wooden pieces, but rather a chess master of all times playing with real people and the chessboard 
is none other than his map of Europe. Who is this that I'm referring to? Well, I still haven't gotten that far in the textbook, so let me read about that between now and the next episode, and we'll start out with the unifications of Italy and Germany. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.